So how's the fast going? <laughs> a little bit of a challenge at times. I'm sorry, go ahead. Not so fast. Not so fast. Yeah, not so fast. Yeah. Uh, I, I told you last week it would be a battle, and, and, and it, it is. It, it, part of the battle is remembering, you know, to, to continue to give up the thing that you've chosen, whether it's a, a meal or snacks or, or uh, sweets or um, Facebook, whatever it is, uh, it can be a challenge to remember and not to uh, forget and, and, and go ahead and do that. And let me tell you, if you do forget or if you do give in, it's okay. Because God is a gracious and compassionate God. God knows our desires. He knows when we mess up unintentionally. He knows when we mess up intentionally. And yet he continues to forgive and say, okay, let's, let's keep on going. And so I want to encourage you, don't give up the, the, the battle. Uh, the Lord is fighting that battle, but don't give up and, uh, and keep, keep pressing forward as, as God has uh, put it on your heart to do that. Well, let's, uh, let's ask him for his grace and help in understanding his word this morning. Our sovereign God, as we have this morning acknowledged you through our singing, we're so humbled by the fact that we have a hearing in your presence. The God who sits on the throne of the universe hears our prayers. Because we come in Jesus' name. We come to the throne of grace. To receive mercy and grace. To help in time of need. Today, we ask you to help us see and learn from this your servant Daniel. As he prayed with fasting. We ask that you will give us encouragement to keep pressing on. We thank you for what we learned last week from Jehoshaphat's prayer that you are fighting the battle for us. That you are the God who is in the heavens. You are the, the, the one who, who is the... Uh, in charge of all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can stand before you. That's who you are. And so we thank you that we serve you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Would you instruct us? Help us? For we ask it in Christ's name. Please open to Daniel chapter 9. There's a story that's told about a five-year-old girl from Texas. And she went to ask her dad for a favor. And it had been, over the past five weeks, it hadn't gotten under 90 degrees. In, in, in their area, and so they were just scorching hot. And so this little five-year-old goes to her father and says, Daddy, can we please go to the swimming pool today? And her daddy explained to her that uh, it costs money to go to the club where the swimming pool is, and he 
I just couldn't afford to take the family swimming. And so she said, well, well then I'm going to ask God. And so with that, she went into a room, and Father was curious, and so he tiptoed back, and he's listening to her prayer. And she says, God, it's awful hot down here today, just awful hot. And I'd really like to go swimming. But they charge a lot of money, and my daddy can't take us because he's got, he doesn't have that much. So will you please do something? Thank you, God. Amen. With that being said, she put on her bathing suit. She took her swimming towel, put it around her neck, and she announced she was going outside to wait for God to do something. No sooner did she sit down on the front porch, the phone rang. It was a woman that of a family that they didn't know very well. And this woman called and she said, uh, well, you know, we, our family would love to get to know your family a little better. And, and so I was just wondering if you guys would want to accompany us to the club to go swimming today, our treat. And the mother said, we would love to do that. But, you know, I, I have a few things to get done. When were you planning to go? She said, oh, that's no problem. We, we're not ready yet either. I, in fact, I didn't even think about it until just a few minutes ago. We all know that God doesn't always answer the way we want in the time frame we would like. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, do I really believe that God hears and answers prayer? Do I have the childlike faith of a five-year-old? When I come to God in prayer, do I really believe that God is hearing my prayers and He will answer them as He sees fit. We're told by the Apostle John in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, and this is the confidence we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we have asked, we have the request that we have asked of Him. That's our confidence. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if He hears us, then we know we have the request we have asked from Him. Do we really believe God hears us and that God desires to answer our prayers in accord with His will? Now, oftentimes, we're not sure if what we're praying is according to His will, right? We, we, we struggle with that, the details of what we are particularly asking for. And that's why it's important that we go to the Word of God and we find out what God has to say about things so that we understand the mind of Christ better so that our prayers are in line with His Word. And that's a journey, that's a process we are all on. But do we really believe this? That God hears and answers prayer. Well, last week we looked at the prayer of Jehoshaphat. right? This, this king of Judah who was facing insurmountable odds. There were three kings who had joined forces together to come and fight against the, the kingdom of Judah. And so he comes before God in fasting and prayer and calls the people to do the same and he stands before the people at the temple of God and he prays. And his prayer was, God, this, this is what's going on. These nations are coming and, and they're trying to drive us out of the inheritance that you have given us. We are powerless against this multitude. We don't know what to do. 
but our eyes are on you. We're looking to you, God. We're trusting in you, God. We don't know what the answer is, but we believe you do. We don't know how to fight them, but we believe you do. Our eyes are on you. Certainly, God answered, gave them reassurance, right? Not to be fear or be dismayed. The battle was not theirs, but God's. So they were told to be encouraged and keep their eyes on Him. So that's what they did, and God answered miraculously. Today we come to another model prayer, the prayer of Daniel in chapter 9 of Daniel. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. We're not going to cover it all today. There's so much here that uh, we would probably be here longer than what you're able to sit. So we're going to break it into two parts and we'll cover the last part next week. But let me go ahead and read verses 1 through 19, Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the Midian descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which were revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We've sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. Moreover, We've not listened to thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, in all the countries to which thou hast driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against thee. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we've sinned against Thee. The Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings, which He has set before us through His servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed Thy law, turned aside, not obeying Thy voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Thus he's confirmed his words which he has spoken to us and against our rulers and uh, who ruled us to bring on us calam great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. We have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to thy truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. 
And now, O Lord our God, who has brought thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has made a name for thyself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city Jerusalem and thy holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications. For thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For thine own sake, O my God, do not delay because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. First of all, I want to look at the determination. What is it that caused Daniel to be so determined to seek God in this way with prayer and fasting, sackcloth and ashes. Well, the historical context, first of all, it was in the first year of Darius the king, which was in 539 B.C. Daniel was about 80 years old at this point. Now, understand, Daniel was taken captive, right? Daniel and many others were taken captive by the Babylonians. That took place in, Jerusalem, uh, in 605 B.C. when Jerusalem was first invaded and the first deportation was taken out of Jerusalem back to Babylon. Now, again, understand, B.C. Right, goes backwards, right? It, it, it goes in descending order down to 1 B.C. and then 1 A.D. moves forward. So that's why 605 B.C. comes before 539 B.C. in the calendar. Also in historical context is that the fall of Jerusalem, that is when Jerusalem was burned by the Babylonians, was in 586 B.C. First deportation, 605 B.C. Then they came back and destroyed the city completely in 586 B.C. Okay, so Daniel understands all this. Daniel's here, and, and because there's a new king coming, taking over, Daniel's been around long enough to, to have seen many new kings take over in the, in the area. And every time a new king comes, things radically change. And so this change of leadership in the nation, this, this uh, knowing that things are going to be different again, Daniel goes to the Word of God for some instruction, some encouragement, something. And he says, and when I observed in the books the number of the years that were revealed from Jeremiah the prophet's the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem. This, this judgment that God has brought upon His people that I am experiencing. 
God said it would last 70 years. Where did he get that from? We go back to Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah said this to the people prior to 605 B.C., prior to, to the Babylonians coming. In fact, it was in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Jeremiah 25, verse 2, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah the son of Am Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these twenty-three years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. And this is what he said. Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell in the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go up after other gods and serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands and I will not and I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of God, Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and he will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants, against all the nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from you, I will, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the lamp of the, the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then I will, it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon, the nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make an everlasting desolation. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pro pronounced against them, and all is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. Daniel most likely read this at 70 years. God told them over and over and over again. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet and told them, if you, if you repent, God will, will not bring punishment. But if you don't, this is what's going to happen. Over and over again, finally God said, this is what's going to happen. Then you go to chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah then, this is after many have been taken to Babylon. Jeremiah writes a letter to the people who are now taken captive. And in that letter he says this, starting, we'll start with verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem, Babylon. Jeremiah 29, verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become their fathers and sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. And seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and will listen, and I will listen to you. And you will call, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place where I have sent you into exile. Imagine Daniel reading these words. He's sitting there at 80 years old and he begins to calculate back to when he was taken captive. 66 years ago. God says in 70 years. This is about to happen. That's possible God started the 70-year clock at 586 when Jerusalem was destroyed. But again, Daniel's looking and saying, well, it could happen as early as four years from now, but it may be 23 years, but it's still coming pretty quickly. And what did God say? When you seek me with all your heart, I will hear you. And so what does Daniel do? He says, I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him. By prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Let me ask you, what is the context in which you're in right now? Certainly we're all in a similar context. New leadership has taken over the country. Things are beginning to change rapidly. Policies are being made that go against what we believe as followers of Christ. And so we all have reason to go to the Word of God to find encouragement and instruction here in this country. But but you also have personal, individual circumstances, a context. And many of our contexts are desperate. Either for ourselves, something going on, or somebody that we love and care about is going through something very difficult, very desperate. And there is a need for God to show up and do something. What does Daniel do? He runs to the Word of God looking for something that God has said that he can hold on to. And what does he find? <laughs> this truth from Jeremiah the prophet. About 70 years. I imagine his heart probably leapt out of his, out of his chest as he was thinking about this. And he determines, if God said, when my people seek me with all of their heart, I'm one of his people, I'm going to seek him with all of my heart. I can't make everybody else do it. But I tell you what, I'm going to do it, I'm going to join in, and I'm going to go after God. Because maybe God will hear me and my heart for him. And maybe that will be the impetus that will bring God's purposes to fruition. He seeks Him. The historical context. Secondly, and for lack of a better 
word, the heart context, right? The, what's going on in Daniel? What do we read in verse 3? He sought the Lord with prayer, supplication, fast and sacrifice. Daniel's heart was to seek God, but it was prompted by the truth of God's Word. It was prompted by what he found in God's Word, what he learned about what God said, who God is, how God has spoken already. God's promises, God's character. He knew God to be a God who keeps His Word. And if God said 70 years, I believe it. If God said, I want my people to seek me, I believe it. The Word of God teaches us the truth about God. It teaches us the truth about what He has done, who He is, who we are, how we are to live our lives. We go to the Word of God for instruction, for encouragement, for help. And God's Word, when we look to it, when we are desperate, we look to see, does God have something to say to me? And I can put into practice, it ought to prompt a response in us. When we see something about God, who He is, it ought to cause us to, to praise Him in light of that. When we see something about what God has done for us, we, it ought to cause us to give thanks to God for what He's done. When we see something about who we are, that helps change our mindset about what we thought and now what God has said. It ought to cause joy within our hearts. It ought to cause us to begin thinking differently about ourselves, about other people, based upon the Word of God. And when God says, this is how I want you to live, it ought to cause us to get up and live in light of that. But as is so often the case, at least if you're like me, even if you have a, a disciplined regimen of reading through the Scriptures on a daily basis, oftentimes I find myself reading it so I can check the box. I did my reading today. And when that happens, I find myself reading it to get through it. Not with an anticipation that God has something to say to me. When I'm desperate, oh, I'm looking for it. When I sense a definite need within myself, I'm looking. God, what do you have to say to me today? I'm hungering and thirsting to know something. I'm hungering and thirsting for some word from you, something I can hold on to. Is it any wonder that God allows us to be desperate with circumstances? And again, fasting is an intentional decision on our part to put ourselves in a place where we feel the hunger, where we feel something. And we ought to direct that hunger to God. God, I want to know you. It's hunger that I'm feeling in my stomach. It's a reminder that I need to be hungering after God. And so instead of eating and filling my stomach with food, I'm going to go and feed on your word. And I'm going to go and talk to you in prayer. And I'm going to trust you for my daily 
for these. The enemy doesn't like that. He wants to keep us fat and lazy. Not only physically, but in every other way. He wants to keep us distracted by so many things. He wants to keep us just consumed with stuff and all that's going on here to the point where we never have time to even feel desperate enough to go after God. Daniel feels it. And so he gives his attention to the Lord God. Again, fasting is a way of giving God our attention. It removes distractions. The idea here is that he, he set his face toward God. As Jehoshaphat said, our eyes are on you, right? And Daniel said, my face is directed to you. Throughout Scripture, it talks about God's face shining upon us, right? Even in our, our psalm this, this week. That's a picture of blessing. It's a picture of, of, of God giving attention to, to us in a, in a healthy and, and good and positive way to bless us. The whole idea of a face turning toward is deliberate, intentional. There are times where we're told God's face is turned against evildoers. That's not a good place to be. If God has turned His face toward you, it's because He's now giving His attention to that situation. And if you, are, if you are doing what God wants, God's giving you His attention. He's seeing that, and He's now going to pour out that blessing. But let me tell you, if you're doing what you're not supposed to be doing, and God turns His face toward that, that's not good. He sought God. He says, gave attention to the Lord my God to seek Him. Seeking Him. He wanted to see God accomplish His Word. He read these things in His Word. He said, God, this is what you say you're going to do. I want to see your will be done. This was not going to impact Daniel's personal life that much because Daniel's 80 years old. To my knowledge in Scripture, and I, I, I may just have missed it, but I don't see anywhere that tells us Daniel went back to Jerusalem. Daniel was not concerned about what he could get out of this. He's concerned about God's will being accomplished. So he sought God. He was a determined man to seek after God because of the historical context and because of what was going on in his own heart. Secondly, this prayer is a contrast. And so the contrast here is between who God is the great and awesome God and the sinful and rebellious people. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Think about there, there are several things that David or Daniel mentions about who God is in this prayer. 
the great and awesome God. What does that mean? It means that He, he is almighty, all-powerful. He's sovereign. Just as Jehoshaphat acknowledged, He's the one who, He is the Lord in the heavens. He is the one who, who rules over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in his hand, and no one can stand against him. The great God, the awesome God. This word awesome means to be feared. One who is to be feared, revered. Just as Jehoshaphat began his prayer acknowledging who God is, Daniel does the same thing. Oh, God. Before I even get into asking for anything, let me remind myself of who you are. The great and awesome God. He's the one who keeps his covenant and loving kindness. He keeps his word. When God says He's going to do something, He's going to do that something. God is a covenant-keeping God, a promise-keeping God. And He is a kind God. So God keeps His Word and He extends His kindness when we don't keep ours. That's who our God is. Leon Wood, in his commentary on the book of Daniel, he writes this. From God's greatness, Daniel turns to God's faithfulness. The two thoughts form a contrast, no doubt, placed side by side intentionally. God's greatness exalts him far above man, and his faithfulness brings him near. Though God is indeed great, still he is willing to condescend in demonstrating faithfulness to unworthy man. The idea is that God keeps all covenants He makes and then always extends steadfast love to man in His frailty and inability to live up to them. There is significance in the fact that Daniel puts the two thoughts together. God not only graciously makes covenant with man, but He also extends necessary love toward man as man finds himself falling short of meeting his responsibilities in the covenant. The word for steadfast love or, or loving kindness is often translated kindness. But it carries the additional thought of steadfastness on God's part in granting the kindness or love. So God continues to do that. Daniel identifies those who can expect these gracious benefits, namely those who love and obey God. These two thoughts also go together. Obedience is love demonstrated. The thought can be paraphrased with those who love him and demonstrate it by obeying him. So Daniel says, Oh, great, awesome God, this one who I'm unworthy to come before, but you are also a God who keeps his word and who extends loving kindness to us frail, weak, sinful people. But it's to those who love Him, and who keep His commands. Well, this, these again, He said, go together. We, we show our love by walking in obedience. We'll never do it perfectly. But is it the desire of our heart? 
the want to walk with the Lord in obedience to Him, that's evidence that we have genuine faith in Christ because faith in Christ changes us. We're born with a heart that says, I don't want to do what God wants. I want to do what I want. I'm bent on doing my thing. If, if doing something nice for someone else gets me where I want to go, I'll do that nice thing. And it will maybe look like I'm, I'm doing what God wants, but in reality, I'm doing what I want. I'm getting where I want to go, and I'm just using these opportunities to get there. Or am I looking and saying, I'm willing to sacrifice what I desire. I'm willing to sacrifice goals and objectives that I'm going after so that I can help someone else, so I can serve someone else, so I can do what's in someone else's best interest. See, that's the evidence. Genuine faith in Christ. Now, it may look the same on the outside. It's what's going on in our heart. You know what's going on with you. You don't know what's going on with someone else. So we can't say, well, that person's not a believer because, or that person is a believer because. It's God's work in the heart, and God sees these things. God knows. He pours these things out for those. Well, he goes on to talk about the fact, the contrast between who God is and who people are. He says, we've sinned committed iniquity, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned aside, haven't listened. But then verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. But to us, open shame. So he acknowledges something else about God. God is righteous, which means this, that he is righteous. His righteousness calls for justice in all of his actions. And so as we read verses 7 through 14, we see the righteousness of God being enacted in His people's lives, right? It is as this day, he says in verse 7, he says, Thus open shame to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries which you have driven them. Because of unfaithful deeds, we've committed against you. Open shame belongs to us and to our leadership. Verse 9, the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. What, what about us? We've rebelled against Him, nor have we obeyed the voice of our Lord to walk in His teachings, which He has um, bef- uh, given to His servants. Verse 11, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed Thy law, turned aside, not obeying Thy voice, so the curse has been poured on us. Verse 12, Thus He confirmed His words which He has spoken to us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on this great calamity. This is the righteousness of God being acted against the people of God who have not listened to His voice, who have not obeyed His voice, who have not turned to Him. And He goes on and on and on. In verse 14, Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all His deeds which He has done. And we have not obeyed His voice. God's righteousness demands that he act in justice in all his ways. He is completely right and righteous to send the the, the Jews into exile. Completely righteous in doing that. He gave them every opportunity to turn back time and time again for years, and they wouldn't. Therefore, he said, this is what's going to happen if you don't. They didn't, so this is what's going to happen. God keeps his word. Boom, it happened. He's righteous in doing so. And let me tell you, God is completely righteous in sending people to a 
and eternity apart from Him. He's right to do that. That's justice. And God says in His Word that anyone who does not come to Christ will go there. God keeps His Word. And He's completely righteous in doing so. Because that's justice. You see, justice is a big thing right now in our culture, isn't it? We want justice. The Me Too movement. Uh, all these justice, social justice things. Everybody wants justice when it benefits them. I find myself amazed at what goes on inside of me when I'm, when I'm watching uh, my own kids play sports. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, how come my kid's not getting in like all the other kids are? And I'm watching, of course I'm seeing from a father's perspective, so I'm biased. Don't think about it that way. But I'm just, I'm sitting there thinking, this doesn't seem right that somebody else's kid gets to play way more than my kid, and my kid's as good as they are. Why is that? Well, you know, that's life. But in me, inside of me, I'm saying, this isn't right. I demand justice. And hey, you know what? If I can yell out in the crowd and maybe make the coach seem like he's doing the wrong thing, man, I'm justified in doing so. I'm, I'm justified in feeling this rage within me. But when's the last time I or any other parent was sitting there and our kid was playing minute after minute after minute and somebody else's kid sitting on the bench and we're saying, this isn't fair. Take my kid out. Put your kid in. Never even crosses your mind. Because we're justice oriented based upon what benefits us, not what is right and fair for everybody. And that's what has clouded, um, ruined so much of the justice emphasis that's going on in our culture. The ultimate problem is that we're not looking at justice from God's perspective. We're looking at it from our own. We only want justice when it is for our benefit. But when we're the guilty party, when we're the one who deserves justice, what do we want? Mercy. Grace, compassion. We want the other side to understand, I didn't, I didn't do it on purpose. I'm not really an evil person like I know they are. <laughs> we just don't consider all of this the way God sees it. The fact is we're all guilty before God. None of us are perfectly righteous. None of us are perfectly just in all of our dealings. We all fall short. And God, as a righteous God, sits on the throne and says, guilty, 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 guilty. Everyone is guilty. There is none righteous, no, not one. Paul says in Romans 3. 
And so what do we deserve? Oh, we deserve to be sent into an eternity apart from God. God is completely righteous in demanding that, and he does in his word. But thank God, he is more than just. Daniel tells us in verse 9, to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. We've rebelled, but God is compassionate and forgiving. It's so important that we understand God's heart is for those who least deserve forgiveness, but most desire it. His heart is for us who are caught in sin. He cares about the pain that sin has caused in your life and mine. Whether it's your decision to sin or someone else's decision to sin against you, or just the fact that we live in a sinful society where sin abounds and the consequences of it all over us, whether we did anything or not. God cares about that. I'm going to read from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. He says this about Jesus. Traveling from town to town, he saw the crowds and had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, Matthew 9, 36. So he teaches them and he heals their diseases. Simply seeing the helplessness of the throngs, compassion ignites. This compassion comes in waves over and over again in Christ's ministry, driving him to heal the sick. Matthew 14, 14 says he had compassion on them, and so he healed their sick. It drives him to feed the hungry. I have compassion on the crowds because they've been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. Matthew 15, 32. It drives him to teach the crowds, and he had compassion on them, and he began to teach them many things. Mark 6, 34. And it causes him to wipe away the tears of the bereaved. He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep, Luke 7, 13. The Greek word for compassion is the same in all these texts. refers most literally to the bowels or the guts of a person. It's an ancient way of referring to what rises up from one's innermost core. This compassion reflects the deepest heart of Christ. Twice in the Gospels we're told that Jesus broke down and wept. In neither case is it sorrow for himself or his own pain. Jesus didn't weep on the cross for himself and the pain he was going through. See, in both cases, he says, it's sorrow over another. In one case, the city of Jerusalem. As he entered into Jerusalem on the donkey, he wept over Jerusalem because they did not recognize the day of their visitation. And the other is when he wept over his deceased friend Lazarus in John 11. And he saw the sorrow of his sisters. What was his deepest anguish? The anguish of others. What drew his heart out of the point of tears? The tears of others. He goes on to say, time and again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. He is, by his enemy's testimony, the friend of sinners. 
when we take the Gospels as a whole and consider the composite picture given to us of who Jesus is, what stands out most strongly? Yes, He is the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes and longings. Yes, He is the one whose holiness causes even His friends to fall down in fear and aware of, it, of their sinfulness. Yes, He is a mighty teacher, one whose authority outstripped even that of the religious PhDs of the day. To diminish any of these is to step outside of vital historic orthodoxy. That's who He is. But the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the Gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. Can you imagine if we lived like that? If we really believed that the heart of Christ was to move toward me when I screw up with compassion, with forgiveness, rather than to, to look in disgust at, at our sinfulness. Understand, God hates sin. I don't want to minimize that. But the heart of Christ is to reach into our sinfulness. It is this compassion that caused God to send His Son to earth to give His life on our behalf. See, how does this work? How can God be both righteous, demanding a just punishment for sin, but also be compassionate and forgiving? How does that work? Oh, this is the gospel. God demanded justice. Therefore, he said, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin, what you and I deserve because of sin, is death, separation from God for all of eternity. That's what we get for what we've done. God said, I can't let that go. I can't just dismiss it. I'm a just God. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to take their sin off them and I'm going to put it on my perfect son. And I'm going to pour out my wrath, just wrath upon him instead of them. So he sent Jesus to come, take on flesh, live the perfect life. And at the right time, he took him and he hung him on a cross. And he took all of our sins and he put them on Jesus. And he poured his wrath, just wrath on against sin on his son. He took it for us. so that he could then extend compassion and forgiveness to those who want it, who see the need for it, and who come to him humbly and say, God, I've screwed everything up. I'm a failure with my life. I can't do anything right before you. I see it. I understand. I deserve to be cast out of your presence forever. But God... I understand that Jesus did this for me. Therefore, I come to you and ask, would you, would you please apply the blood of Jesus to my life? Would you forgive me out of your compassion and forgiveness? I trust you. That's the gospel. 
It's the good news. That's how God can continue to be righteous and demand punishment for sin and yet be compassionate and forgiving and offer it to us. But it's only those who come humbly with faith before God to receive it. Daniel has somewhat of an understanding of this. He doesn't understand everything because he hasn't got there yet. Jesus hasn't been born yet. And so, but he knows who God is. And he's banking on the fact that not only because God is just and he and righteous and, and he he did these things out of that, but he's also banking on the fact that God is compassionate and forgiving. And so he's going to ask, God, would you restore? We're going to get to that next week. so important that we understand who God is. That we learn to trust Him in light of who He is. Not some made-up idea that, that, again, as a culture, we, 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 we take one thing out of the Bible, that God is love, and we, we, we make it however we want it to be. And that means then, in, our, in the mind of so many in our culture, that that means that God would just overlook everything I do wrong, everything that doesn't please to Him, and He would just, he would just extend love. Like an old senile grandfather who doesn't know anything anymore, who just smiles and, and acknowledges, yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's not our God. We got to know who He is. We got to know what He's done for us, and we got to trust Him. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you never change. You never grow old and senile. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that you are the just, righteous, and holy God who cannot turn away and overlook sin. We know that in the end, all wrongs will be made right because you are a just God. But we also give you thanks that you are compassionate and forgiving and you provide a way for our sins to be dealt with justly so that you can extend to us full pardon for our sin. And it's only through the work the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. God, I pray that if there's somebody in the hearing of my voice today, that for the first time in their life, it makes sense to them. For the first time, they see clearly their sin and need for a Savior. And that God has provided a way through Jesus. God, I pray that they would know that you are longing to bring them into the family. You are calling them to yourself to believe in Christ for salvation. God, you do this work. Father, for those of us who have already been privileged 
we've been brought to that place in our life. And we've bowed our heart. We're walking in relationship with Jesus now. Won't you encourage us with this truth? Won't you also equip us to go and take this good news to those who still need to hear it? Those who desperately are looking for the answer to the problem of life. Oh, Father, thank You for who You are. Thank You for what You've done. We want to praise You today. You are the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness who is righteous in all of His ways and kind in all of His dealings. Compassionate, forgiving God. We praise You today. In Jesus' name.